Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. So two weeks ago, we talked about the arbitrary nature of culture, how culture is oftentimes incredibly variable between different countries and even regions within a country, and how this doesn't necessarily affect the livelihoods of the people in those areas. We talked about the difference in secularism from the United States and France, and how something considered to be so fundamental to both societies is really something that doesn't ultimately affect how the everyday people function, as long as there isn't conflict over it. Much, much earlier in the series, we talked about public trust and democracy. We talked about how the power of government stems from its ability to be trusted by the people, from its ability to ask nicely and for people to comply with things like pandemic orders. However, it hasn't been made fully clear, at least not on this show, the connection between these two elements. This is, in fact, the situation in the United States where the decline of public trust has been rooted in this arbitrary nature of culture and an attempt to separate the country upon cultural lines. Regardless of your underlying beliefs with regards to any sort of cultural issue in the United States, the ultimate conclusion of what has come out of the fighting over said cultural issues has been the corruption in government, has been the willingness to allow bribes to happen in front of everyone's vision, and the anger that has been stoked based on partisanship and tribalism in the United States. So for this episode, I'm asking you to completely zoom out of each of those specific battles. This isn't about winning or losing them, because by design, these cultural battles are actually architected so that there can never be a clear winner, and that this continued rage, this continued conflict, not only doesn't result in victories for either side on said issue, but also stops progress from being made on every other issue that could possibly be on the table. Now, there is a fundamental link in politics between these cultural issues and the ability for people to make sense of basic realities. This is because that, while they may not necessarily impact people directly, cultural issues do have a significant power to emotionally connect with people, to play on base assumptions about life that people take for granted. They apply these facts of life to a completely foreign context, to a context in which they may be true or they may not be true. But what's important to understand is that regardless of what fundamental assumptions you're applying to a given situation, the situations themselves are designed so that there can be multiple different priorities And depending on what those priorities are, you'll come up on basically polarized lines. And this is true for every identifiable cultural issue in the United States. Note that I don't necessarily count climate or immigration as a cultural issue, as I talked about in the previous episode. However, some of the elements with regards to the politics of distraction and with regards to furthering polarization do apply to those issues as well. They're kind of in a gray zone. Regardless, when you have such fundamental beliefs that are tied to people's perceptions of the world, they're perceived in the same way that you would perceive a hard fact, 
something like reporting on economic numbers or reporting on a corruption scandal that has plenty of evidence. It can be incredibly difficult to separate these two types of reporting, as for those who have been ingrained in a certain cultural community who has had some assumptions that have been passed through time, that has been rooted in every area of their life and education, that can be something that is incredibly difficult to separate from something that is just a measurable fact. However, in the United States, it's not only a difference between countries, but it's a difference between geographic areas and even a difference between people who may be living next to each other. The political parties and other political actors have managed to escalate the differences between various cultural ideas and have exploited those that are most divisive instead of focusing on those that would actually unify the country. There is a significant number of issues that the vast majority of Americans agree on, including opposing corruption, including things like infrastructure, including things like response to the coronavirus. However, because of the ongoing cultural fights, there has been a distraction at play where those issues that the vast majority of Americans do agree on are never addressed. This has been amplified by the social media dynamics. However, what makes this truly impossible is the fact that there are now two distinct cultures. There's one for conservatism and one for liberalism, or leftism, progressivism, whatever you want to name it. Of course, this isn't something that has to exist. I don't think that this level of separation exists in Canada, for example, nor do I think it exists in France. In fact, there has been a dedicated effort in order to make sure that this does not happen in France, by figures such as Macron, the president of France, as well as other politicians on both sides of the aisle. In the United States, this cultural separation means that these things that are perceived as facts are in two different ballparks, depending on who is watching, and that means that regardless of what credible fact reporting a source says, there's always going to be some issue. There's always going to be some cultural issue that mainstream networks can appeal to to attempt to discredit one of these sources. For example, let's take the abortion issue. Even if you have a left-wing publication that is incredibly accurate, that always gives accurate numbers with regards to economics, that reports on crises and reports on scandals on both sides of the aisle accurately, and that holds politicians of all stripes to account, that type of publication can nonetheless be targeted based on its left-leaning editorial beliefs with regards to abortion. And you might have noticed by now that the same thing can apply in the opposite direction. Even if there's perfectly accurate reporting on all objective fields by a right-wing-leaning source, they can also still be attacked by abortion. And what this means is that there's always going to be a substantive base of the population, probably around 40%, that is completely maligned to any given news source, regardless of its credibility. This undermines the ability for there to be a centralized news source that has the trust, that has earned the beliefs and, quite frankly, the monetary support of the entire country regardless of political leaning. And what amplifies this effect is that when you have an audience that is polarized by this effect, 
then you're going to have greater incentive to cater to that audience to attract more people in that audience since regardless of what you do to try to play to the center or to play to the other side of the aisle, there's always going to be these baseline attacks based on cultural issues that are impossible to cover both sides on. Regardless of how you report on said cultural issues, there's always a contingent that's separated by them. The same dynamics occur on social media, where people gain social media followings, such as friends on Facebook, subscribers on YouTube, etc., based on these same dynamics. And the recommendation engines of these social media platforms actually play off of the same effect to try to further target those people who have those pre-existing beliefs. However, note that this is not too different from the way that mainstream media operates. So it's not a fundamental problem with social media, unlike some of the other things that I talk about, but it is a fundamental problem with news media as a whole, and the financial and political incentives that come with it. Unfortunately, this is one of the situations where it's much easier to cause damage than to reverse it. Because of the damage that's already been done by the mainstream American cable networks, this makes it incredibly difficult for a set of credible sources to arise and for these cultural tensions to de-escalate. While it is fully possible, there is a reinforcement loop happening where the polarized media amplifies the cultural divisions and the cultural divisions further polarize the media. This is why one of the things that I'm calling for is for replacement of the American media by the Canadian media or by any other foreign source from a stable democracy. This is only going to solve part of the problem though. As I said before, there's still going to be people who have an aversion to said media because it's impossible to satisfy both sides. Of course, the cultural reporting will be much more light, will be much closer to the center, and will not try to exacerbate some of these divides. But those divides will exist nonetheless, and there will still be a contingent of people that move away from these sources. One possible solution is to avoid cultural reporting entirely. This is actually what I try to do. I generally don't cover any specific cultural fights or issues that occur in politics. I sometimes, like this episode, try to cover the meta effects of it, what culture in general has on politics. However, even this I try to stray away from unless absolutely necessary. The same thing is true with social media fact checkers. There are certain fact checkers that do act in a political manner. Even those that don't, regardless of their political leaning inherently, will nonetheless come out on one side or the other based on this polarization. One thing that can be done here is to completely separate cultural and factual matters. To say that if a candidate is running an ad on cultural grounds, that it is labeled as such and is exempt from the other bases. Of course, this introduces other problems, but it nonetheless lends more credibility to said fact-checking organizations. The same effect applies here as with the quote-unquote community guidelines argument where Facebook and other social media companies should absolutely remove those community guidelines against quote-unquote hate speech, anything that is not considered illegal because, quite frankly, the damage caused by conspiracy theories and by the consequent undermining of fact-checkers due to those previous policies is much greater than the possibility of someone calling another person an a-hole on the internet. 
In fact, I would rather the latter exchange happen a hundred, a thousand times than to have someone actually fall for a conspiracy theory. Those have much greater real-life consequences. Sticking to the idea of social media, there is very much a model in social media that does exacerbate this, and I call this the induced cult model. Of course, there are several characteristics of cults that are very much tied to online political activism and online political discourse in general that is highly connected through social media. These characteristics include blind obedience, a disconnection from reality on factual matters, and on an intense hatred of those that are outside of a given group. However, the difference between these and mainline cults is that there is no leader. There is not necessarily one given centralized hierarchy that can report up to someone who is controlling the entire cult or the entire movement or the entire conspiracy. This makes control difficult and can often make it so that there is mainly chaos coming from said conspiracy theories that don't amount to any sort of political change on people outside of it. That was the state of play before social media was introduced. After all, there wasn't much progress made by people who denied the moon landing or people who denied 9-11 or other conspiracy theorists in the past. However, with social media, we enter what is called a high convergence environment. Because of the frequency of messages and the way that social media promotes them in order to select for those that are most appealing to those basic human tendencies, basic primal instincts, there is an effect where the ideas that are most likely to impact the conspiracy theory contingent in one direction or another rise to the top and dominate those social media sites, at least among these loosely connected groups. So there is nonetheless an ability, despite there not being a leader, for some central idea to take over the movement, to take over the conspiracy, and actually direct people towards one given political action, including a vote, including a demonstration, or even including an act of political violence, which has occurred in the United States and in other less developed countries worldwide. This broader idea of convergence asks a fundamental question. Which approach should be used? A general slowdown that reduces the spread of this viral information, or something that resolves the underlying problems, taking advantage of the fact that this high convergence environment allows us to easily spot them. As with many issues that I talk about on this show, the solution is not a dichotomy, it involves elements of both. In the short term, there should be actions taken for companies such as Facebook to slow down the spread of these hyperpolarized recommendations. Now, unlike most of the people who are technologically illiterate, I don't necessarily think that it's a productive approach to ban one specific site, or one specific news source, or even one specific characteristic. Any solution to the misinformation problem has to be anti-adversarial, which means that people can't manipulate the system to get around it. Moreover, Facebook itself and other social media sites have many political blind spots, so there may be conspiracy theories, particularly those echoed by the mainstream American media, that don't actually get resolved by this issue. What makes matters worse is that those that gain the most traction, that even gain mainstream traction, are often the most damaging and the most widespread. So what can actually be done here is an attempt to reduce the virality of information overall. 
particularly within these concentrated groups that revolve around one particular idea. So what this means is essentially adjusting the internal coefficients or the priorities that a recommendation algorithm gives based on whether information is traveling in a small hyperconnected group, as is the characteristic of most conspiracy theories. That means that if a post is made that quickly gains traction among one of said identified hyperconnected groups, it would then slow down the visibility of some of these posts, so a post can only be seen after, say, 30 minutes or an hour of it being posted. However, one critical thing, and it's why I've defined a solution so clearly and so precisely in the situation, is that it has to be transparent. The public trust has to be earned, along with the steps before that I talked about, such as removing those measures that are contradictory to basic fact-checking, is that there also needs to be public availability, public transparency, of the information and of the algorithms that is actually being processed. This makes it so that the rules are being applied equally, that all characteristics, that all patterns that fall under this characteristic are going to be influenced by this measure. I do honestly think that if these measures are publicized and that there is a noticeable point that these conspiracies on both the left and both the right are reduced equally, or at least affected by these measures equally, then there will be much less of a political backlash. One of the significant problems of the underlying social media and broader technological conflict is that there is a high possibility of corruption. In the episode about Lebanon, I talked about the Polyev principle, the idea that arbitrary decision-making gives the opportunity for corruption, and this is very much the case with regards to social media. A lot of this is outsourced, a lot of this is based on human judgment, and this is simply an approach that will not work. Not only is there a room for corruption, not only is there a room for personal political biases, but there's also simply not enough human fact-checkers to actually process the volume of information that they're dealing with. The reason why these measures aren't being implemented is not only because that there's some level of technical expertise required for them, is because that they would be damaging to social media sites with regards to profit. With the high interaction that many of these companies receive from the conspiracy contingent, which is actually much broader if you include the political conspiracies of both the mainstream left and the mainstream right, then you're going to be involving a situation where there may be harshly reduced profits from ad revenue or from other sources because of reduced interactivity. Another approach to try to get the solution done is to push for it through government regulation. However, with the state of the political parties in the United States, I don't necessarily think that there will be a unified push in order to adopt universal technological solutions that are actually productive. I mean, if I'm proven wrong, that will be a great day for me. I'll cheer for whichever government officials do try to pass such legislation, and I'll only believe it on the day that it's signed into law. So that leaves the two main avenues of change out. What we can actually do is to have a sustained online effort to actually put political, social, and media pressure onto these companies. Of course, turning the high convergence environment against itself. This is not going to be an easy feat, as of course these companies do have a strong malincentive 
as do the political parties. This may be the best thing that can actually be done with regards to pushing these solutions forward. Just build broader traction about it, build broader traction about replacing the American media with foreign media, and of course, as I always say, share the podcast. This podcast is where all these ideas are centralized, it's where many of these ideas are generated from the ground up, and it's a useful resource for educating more people and for reducing the negative political effects that many other media sources create. You can like, comment, share, and subscribe, and that will help protect our democracy. And if you do that, if you do any of the measures that I mentioned before, thank you very much. This is something that is critical, it's vital to me, and why I'm doing this podcast in the first place.